Lord, you deserve all of our praise, our thanksgiving. You are worthy of our worship. At the time of your servant Solomon, who built a temple to your glory, Lord, you descended in power and in light and in great glory. You filled that temple. And Lord, you did it again and are doing it again with the new temple, the church, made up of people, living stones. You have come, Lord, and indwelt us by your Holy Spirit, and that is just such an astonishing truth. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's residence in us. And Lord, not just for us, that's not just the end of the story, but that we would go forward into the world as your ambassadors, as light in a very dark place. And I pray, Lord, even this upcoming week that you would help your church in the workplace, at home, at school, wherever we may be, Lord, to, to be a light and that we would be proclaimers of the gospel at one level or another. Father, thank you for the mission that you have given to us. And I pray, Lord, today as we open your word, that your spirit would be powerful amongst us. Help us to see Jesus and to know indeed that he will hold us fast. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The Netherlands had been occupied by Nazi Germany since the middle of 1940. But on June 6, 1944, Allied soldiers, including many Canadians, would land on the beaches of northern France there to liberate Western Europe from the clutches of the Nazis. And that beach landing on June 6, 1944, of course, is known as D-Day. Having landed there, the Allies then advanced through France and through Belgium and then on to the Netherlands. And the fighting raged between the Allies and the Germans over the Netherlands. And by October of 1944, there was a serious food shortage in that country, especially in the western part of the nation where four and a half million people lived. Butter ran out, bread was scarce, and to top it off, the, elec the electricity and the heat had been turned off. The people of the Netherlands were starving, they were very cold, and they resorted to dismantling their houses in order to get fuel for fires, and they were eating tulip bulbs and sugar beets. The winter of 1944-45 was horrific in the Netherlands. About 20,000 people ended up dying of starvation and of cold. It wasn't until May of 1945 that the Allies, with Canada playing a major role, finally liberated the Netherlands from the Nazis. And the Allies successfully drove out the German occupiers, freed the Dutch people 
although at the great cost of losing thousands of soldiers. When the Son of God assumed human flesh and came into this world, it was like D-Day had arrived for Satan and his army of demons. The birth of Jesus Christ signaled the end of Satan's illegal occupation of this world. God had come to earth to invade occupied territory. And in the gospel stories, over and over again, we see Jesus, the divine warrior, doing just that, advancing into occupied territory, bringing deliverance, bringing liberation for captives who were suffering, taking back what belongs to God. Well, come with me this morning. If you have a Bible, you can certainly turn there, either on your device or in a physical Bible. Come with me this morning to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to just jump in here at verse 14. Luke 11, verse 14. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. I want you to notice the aggressive flavored verb here, casting out. Other ways to put this would be Jesus was forcing a demon to leave, or Jesus was driving out a demon, or Jesus was expelling a demon. There is a forcibleness here in what Jesus does with this demon. Luke continues, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Just notice here, friends, in the case of this particular circumstance, with this particular demon, muteness, or an inability to speak, was the cruel effect on this human being on this person. But now the occupier had been driven out by Jesus and the man speaks. And people standing there are amazed at what they hear and at what they see. Nobody can deny that a miracle has just taken place. They have just witnessed, put yourself in their shoes, they have just witnessed this amazing thing that Jesus has done. Surely, great power has come from Jesus in this moment to make this mute man suddenly speak. They can hear this man's voice now with their own ears, and they are amazed by this. But some in the crowd, who Matthew, in his version of the story, identifies as Pharisees, and Mark, in his version of the story, identifies as scribes, these people now voice their conclusion as to the source of this power. Can't deny that power has been evidenced here, but now they're talking about the source of this power. Verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by 
Beelzebul, the prince of demons. You see, these Pharisees and scribes, listen, were terrified at the notion that God could be at work through Jesus. That notion was far too threatening to their settled arrangements. Yes, they had just witnessed this miracle of the mute man suddenly speaking. They could not deny that a miracle had just taken place, but they were very unwilling to associate God's power with this Jesus who they despised. And so they assert out loud that Beelzebul is the source of Jesus' power. Now let's talk about this odd word, Beelzebul, just for a moment. So the first part of that word, Biel, is the Greek version of the word Baal, which means Lord or master. And then the second part of that word is zebul, which is a Hebrew word that means lofty house or temple. So that if we were to put this together, the, the meaning of Beelzebul is something like master of the house or lord of the house. But that word Beelzebul, follow with me here, that word has a strong connection back to 2 Kings chapter 1, where one of the Philistine gods is called Baal-zebub. Baal-zebub. And zebub, in contrast to zebul, means fly or flies. So that Beelzebub means lord of the flies. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, is likely a derogatory version of Beelzebul, Lord of the House. So Beelzebul, Lord of the House, and Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, are one and the same. And as for flies, well, they live on dung heaps. Beelzebub has the derogatory meaning, Lord of the flies who live on dung heaps. Now, hopefully you're still with me. After all of that, notice carefully that the Pharisee scribes in our verse identify this Beelzebul, Beelzebub, as the prince of demons, notice, and they associate this prince of demons with the power that has just worked through Jesus. This is an astonishingly blasphemous and very perverse assertion that they are making here. Associating Jesus and his power with the demonic God of flies and dung. In fact, so outrageous and blasphemous is this statement from the Pharisees and scribes that in Matthew's version of this story, Jesus makes sure to tell them in this moment that blaspheming against God's spirit, as the Pharisees have just done here, is unforgivable. Now, according to verse 16 of our text, there were others in the crowd who wanted to test 
Jesus. They kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So apparently this casting out of the demon that has just happened wasn't enough for this second group. They wanted a more sensational miracle from Jesus. In in verses 17 and 18, Jesus, we notice, simply disregards this second group and he focuses attention instead on the Pharisees and scribes, the first group who have just asserted that he is operating in the power of Beelzebul. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, of course, the basic point that Jesus is making here is a point of logic, right? If Satan, a.k.a. Beelzebul, were to drive out his own soldiers, if he were to cast out his own demons, wouldn't this be a a sort of self-defeating strategy? Wouldn't Satan then be working at cross-purposes with his own designs if he did that? If the occupying commander drives out his own occupying soldiers, it is utterly illogical. So then, the point is that contrary to the Pharisees' assertion, the power at work through Jesus to drive out this mute demon had not been demonic power. And Jesus goes on to make a further point in verse 19. Watch this. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons... Pharisees and scribes, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, we see evidence in Acts chapter 19, verse 13, that in this time period, there were, walking around this whole area, itinerant Jewish exorcists. Jesus wonders here, Hey, if you were to have a discussion with those Jewish exorcists, those sons of yours, Pharisees and scribes, would you bring the same charge to them that they too are working in Beelzebul's power? Likely you would not. And then, friends, we get verse 20, which is an absolutely magnificent statement from Jesus. He says, listen to this. But, when we see that word but in scripture, things change, right? The thought changes. But, if it is by the finger of God, the finger of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now listen. During the time of the Exodus, the Egyptian magicians had been able to reproduce, they had been able to duplicate the first two plagues that God had sent by their own magic arts. Turning the water into blood, 
and then inundating the land of Egypt with frogs. They were able to duplicate both of those. But when God unleashed the third plague, the gnats, G-N-A-T-S, the gnats that swarmed the land when Aaron struck the ground with his staff, the Egyptian magicians failed to reproduce that plague by their magic. They could not do it. And so then they went to Pharaoh and they conceded to Pharaoh, listen, in Exodus 8, 19, that the gnats had to have been produced by the finger of God. Yes, the magicians had tapped into a demonic power to mimic the first two plagues, but then that power had hit its limit with the third plague. It was the finger of God and the finger of God alone that produced swarming gnats all over the land like that. Well, in Luke eleven twenty, Jesus, what's he doing? He's taking us right back to that scene in Exodus 8. The first Exodus had seen the finger of God working in a power that far exceeded what the best magicians in Egypt could do. And now here in Luke 11, what had arrived in Jesus Christ was nothing less than the new Exodus, the new liberation, the new freeing of captives from the enemy. And what the people are seeing now is a power at work the finger of God that far exceeds any demonic power, yes? If it is by the finger of God, Exodus 8, 19, that I cast out, that I expel, that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God has come upon you. It's not just near, it has come upon you. In Jesus Christ, my friends, the kingly power of Almighty God has come. The new exodus has arrived. The divine warrior has come with liberating power in a new conquest to expel the occupying forces of evil. Those occupying forces must now leave. When the Savior claims the heart, the cruel tyrant must depart. When Jesus speaks and gives command, the prince of darkness can't withstand. This poor mute man had been captive to this demon, had been captive to this demon before Jesus came along and freed him. This man had been like Israel during the exile. Israel had been held captive to a greater power than they were. Held captive to Babylon until God in his power, what did he do? He raised up Cyrus and he rescued Israel and set them free from their captivity. And during the time when they had been held captive in Babylon, the people had heard Isaiah ask a rhetorical question, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 49, 24. Isaiah had asked the question, 
Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? That is, can Israel, the prey, can they be taken now from mighty Babylon? Could captive Israel be set free, rescued from their tyrannical Babylonian masters? And most people in that moment of exile would have answered, no, it can never happen because Babylon is just far too strong. Babylon, after all, is the superpower of the world. But in the very next verse of Isaiah 49, we have these blessed words. For thus says Yahweh, the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, yes? And the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I, Yahweh, will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Israel would be rescued from the mighty clutches of, of Babylon by one more mighty than Babylon, the Lord, the divine warrior, stronger than strong Babylon would rescue his people from their conquering oppressor. And in that verse that follows, which is Isaiah 49, 26, what we notice there is that the rescuing Lord is called the mighty one. Do you know him that way? The mighty one, not a mighty one. The <laughs> mighty one. Well, the forerunner of Jesus Christ John the Baptist, had announced that one mightier than him was about to arrive on the, on the scene. Jesus, the mightier one, was about to come and, and to, to overshadow John and to take precedence. Isaiah 11, verse 2, the spirit of might rests upon Jesus. Jesus is, friends, the mighty one, now come in human flesh, and in our passage in Luke eleven twenty one and 22, he says so, he says so. Jesus still is talking here to the Pharisees. Jesus obviously is echoing that passage in Isaiah 49, where captive Israel was rescued from strong Babylon by a stronger one than Babylon. Jesus says... When a strong man, listen to the words. When a strong man, how many weapons does he have? Fully armed. Guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he does what? Attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So in Israel's case, in the time of the exile, the strong, the strong man had been Babylon, and the one stronger in that case had been Yahweh, God of Israel, who raised Cyrus up and rescued them and set them free. But now, 
In this time when Jesus had launched his offensive, when Jesus was storming the land to take back from Satan what belonged to God, the oppressor of God's people is not Babylon or Rome, but rather Satan. Satan is the strong man that holds people captive. And Jesus himself is one stronger Yes, then Satan, the mighty one, Jesus, comes warring, comes winning, comes rescuing, plundering, victorious, triumphant. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's take a little time to walk through these two verses slowly. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his palace, his goods are safe. Satan is the strong man, fully armed. We need to understand, my friends, that Satan has an arsenal of weaponry. That includes temptation, accusation, deceit, all manner of snares and traps, fear, harassment, oppression, and in extreme cases, possession. As the 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle put it, he said, Satan is never at a loss for means to injure the soul of persons. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote a book that very helpfully cataloged many of the devices in Satan's armory. I'll just give you a few examples here. Brooks noted how Satan likes to lure us into sinning by presenting attractive bait while hiding the hook. He also noted that a weapon that is commonly employed by Satan is to present God to us as all mercy and no judgment. So go ahead and sin because God will always be merciful to you. There is no judgment. Brooks noted also that in order to discourage us from living holy before God, Satan likes to remind us of the losses, the sufferings, the difficulties that might arise if we dare to obey God in holy living. Well, the point we're making here, friends, is the point that Jesus makes in verse 21 of our text. The strong man Satan comes fully armed. Do you know that? He comes fully armed. We need to understand as human beings that Satan has this arsenal of ugly and crafty weapons, and we need to understand that indeed for us, to us, he is a fearsomely mighty foe. Satan guards his own palace and keeps his goods safe, and I think the palace and the goods here are probably human beings 
that the strong man Satan holds captive by his demonic agents like the man here, in this case, who had been mute. Beelzebul, Satan, Lord of the house, remember Beelzebul, Lord of the house, guards his house, guards the human being that he is occupying, and he keeps his goods safe. Verse 22, but when one stronger than he, who's that? Say the name. Jesus. The divine warrior. Far stronger than Satan. When he attacks him, notice how strong that verb is. When Jesus descends swiftly upon Satan, the strong man, when Jesus arrives in almighty power on Satan and overcomes him, when Jesus conquers Satan, when Jesus prevails upon Satan, he, Jesus, takes away, notice, takes away Satan's armor in which he trusted. Now, we've seen over and over again in this sermon series that those who trusted in their armor, <laughs> like the seed of the serpent Goliath, they became routed because God's power bested them. And now the serpent himself, Satan, is said here to trust in his armor, but his armor, friends, is no match for Jesus Christ. The divine warrior overcomes, overwhelms Satan, takes away Satan's armor, and, says Jesus, the spoil from this total victory is then divided up. Now listen. Seven chapters before this, so... Luke chapter 4, Jesus overcame the three temptations of Satan in the wilderness. Jesus overcame the devil there. The strong man Satan, with his strong temptations, came up against one stronger than he was in that wilderness. Jesus prevailed and by his obedience to the Father, in that moment, there was an initial, we could call it an initial binding of the strong man, Satan. And now Jesus was going around plundering <laughs> Satan's illegal kingdom by doing what? By casting demons out of people and by healing lepers and by healing the sick, liberating people from the clutches of the occupier. And Jesus is doing all of this in those days prior to Satan's final and ultimate defeat that would soon happen at the cross and resurrection. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, lays a whooping on him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And then do you remember, my friends, do you remember, if you were with us three Sundays ago, do you remember how Elijah on Mount Carmel had asked the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, Beel, <laughs> then follow him. Do you remember that? 
Elijah had clearly expressed the fact there that there were only two options available to the people, follow Yahweh or follow Baal. There's no third option available to you. Well, in good Elijah-like fashion, now Jesus does the exact same thing in Luke eleven twenty-three, which is our final verse this morning. Having just given us this picture of the strong man being bested by the stronger, Jesus, the stronger one, now says to the people, says to you and I today, says to you and I today, whoever is not with me is against me. How many options are there? Two options. It says Jesus Christ the Lord of the universe saying that whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no middle ground, my friends. And Jesus wants you to understand that. In Canadian culture, we love middle ground and gray areas and relativism, right? Jesus says there's two options available to us. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I ask you this question this morning as we wind this up. I want you to think about this. Are you going to wrestle in this world against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness? against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Are, are you going to wrestle against those things outside the power and the protection and the presence of the divine warrior, Jesus Christ, who holds you fast? If you're not with him in this battle, you are against him. If you're not gathering with him, you are scattering. Jesus draws the battle lines in crystal clear fashion here. Do we see that? And so are you with him in the battle? Listen, when you are facing temptation, have you faced temptation in a strong way? Maybe some of you are right now. When you're facing temptation, when the devil comes and attempts to snare you, Perhaps you're being snared right now and you either know it or you don't know it. When you find yourself beaten down constantly by his accusations that come at you like fiery darts. When you find yourself assaulted by his wicked attacks or, or when he brings into your path some divisive, ugly, splinter in your life that's causing you pain, when you find him causing you grief and woe, because he wants to destroy you and destroy your faith, what do you do? You turn to Jesus Christ. You get on your face, and I mean this, you get on your face before the divine warrior Jesus Christ and you call down firepower. You stand in his might. 
You renew your communion with him. You ask him for more wisdom and you ask for his rescue and you humbly ask him on your face to point out to you anything in your life that is displeasing to him. And be like an empty, open cup that is just drawing all strength from his inexhaustible strength. You know he has an inexhaustible supply of strength for his people? Trust him to win the battle and bring you through. Trust him to win the battle and to bring you through. And I'm gonna press you on this this morning. Will you, don't think about what you're gonna have for lunch right now or your plans this afternoon. Think about this. Will you fling yourself, the whole of your person, onto Jesus today, today? Tomorrow, Tuesday, please know, and then I'm done, that Jesus is stronger, far stronger than the mere defeated strong man who assails you. Be strong, not in yourself, but in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you are so unbelievably good to us when we did not deserve it. To send Jesus to make that extravagant sacrifice for the likes of us, your enemies. To free us, to liberate us. You came into occupied territory to free us, dear God, and to give us your Holy Spirit who indwells us. Oh God, I pray for God's people this week that we would go out, and if it's like having a blank check in our, or a check that we haven't cashed in our back pocket, that we would cash it in you, draw upon your power and your enablement and your ability to be overcomers. No weapon formed against us shall prosper because of you. And so I pray, dear God, that we would each be on our faces this week not being self-sufficient, but being, being dependent on you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.